0: Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your goodness, and we thank You for Your Word, and we do cherish and highly value Your Word, and we ask that You'd speak to our hearts through Your Word today, that it would go deep into our hearts, and that as Your Word is sown on the soil of our hearts, we pray that our soil wouldn't be hard, we pray that it wouldn't be thorny, we pray that it wouldn't be rocky, but it would be fertile. And that it would bear fruit that it would bring glory to you. And so we thank you for the privilege of sitting at your feet. Just have your way with us, Lord, and guide us and lead us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Jeremiah chapter 20 is the drill. These are cool chapters. I'm pretty excited about them. Can you feel it? Yeah. Me too. Uh, So, Lord willing, I'm so excited. We're going to read 20, 21, and 22 today. Still excited? (laughs) Me too. (laughs) So, we've been talking about Jeremiah, and like all of us, we all have sort of a ministry. And we may not be be prophets in the nation of Judah, but we all have a ministry. We all have uh, a responsibility as believers. If we are Christians, we are ministers. And, um, and yet we all kind of recognize there's sort of that, that dovetail that's really in many ways, well, I'm going to say is, is completely inseparable, and that is there's the person and the message, right? And if you ever try to separate the two, it just doesn't work, right? The, the person, the integrity of the person, the character of the person validates the message, right? And the, uh, the message really, in many ways, strengthens the character of the person. And so um, uh, the two go very much hand in hand. And so we've been talking about those two things, and we're going to talk about that a little bit more today as we deal with uh, Jeremiah the person, particularly in chapter 20. And uh, then in chapter 21 and 22, we're going to see the message specifically to the final kings of the nation of Judah. So again, historically... Uh, The kingdom of of Israel was divided after the reign of Solomon into the northern kingdom, which is called the nation of Israel, and then the southern kingdom, which is called the nation of Judah. And uh, by this time in their history, Israel has been basically removed and uh, dispersed and conquered by the Assyrians. And now we're about 150 years after that, approaching the final demise of the nation of Judah, who's going to be Carried away captive by the Babylonians, and so we're going to read about uh, as we look at Jeremiah. Jeremiah was really God's last instrument of warning to the nation of Judah prior to their final defeat. So uh, you know, when the ship is burning, uh, it's when it's a good time to listen to the warning of the Lord, right, before it goes down. And so the ship is very much on fire at this point in their history, and so um, so it is what it is. You would think. That during times like this, uh, you'd see hearts that are very receptive to the Lord. But the hard heart, the hard human heart, is a very hard thing. The hardened human heart is a very hard thing. So anyway, just to review the last couple weeks, well, last week, chapter 18, God told Jeremiah, remember, to go to the potter's house, and he showed it, and he revealed to him kind of the pic, the image there of the potter had a very moldable piece of clay, and it was marred, and so he was able to take that same lump of clay and make something new out of it you know, really a picture of what God does in our lives. And then chapter 19, God told Jeremiah to take a piece of hardened earthen vessel and some of the elders, go out to the valley of of Hinnom, and basically uh, chapter 19, verse 10, there you shall break, then you shall break the flask in the sight of the men who go with you. So a picture of a hard heart really can't be, uh, you know, re- Reconfigured like the soft, moldable heart. Right, it's a great pic- picture for us. And what we see is the heart that is hardened uh, is a pretty dangerous thing, frankly. And so, um, you know, I don't know if, uh, you know, along the way, we meet people in, in this in this world, unfortunately, who have hard hearts. And uh, I'll be honest with you: whenever I come across one, I don't try to talk him out, him or her, out of having a hard heart. I just pray for that person because that is all you can do. That's their last hope. And uh, a hard heart, just please, 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 can can I implore us all? Be very scared of a hard heart. A hard heart is a terrible thing to have. Terrible thing to have. And sometimes it comes on. I didn't mean to go off on this, but I will. So we got all day. A hard heart kind of starts with just maybe a little sin, or maybe maybe I'm not hard to the Lord, but I'm hard to that guy that wronged me back in 1978. Yeah. See that? Mm-hmm. And I would submit to you that I cannot be where I need to be with the Lord if I've got a hard heart towards that guy in 1978, yeah. Right? It's very subtle. It's very dangerous. Right? Hebrews, talks, Hebrews chapter 12 talks about the bitter heart. The bitter heart is like a root. Do you see a root? On a tree? Do you see a root on a big oak tree? No, you don't see the root. But is it powerful? It's very powerful. And so that's just my spiel on a hard heart. Be careful. So anyway... Then Jeremiah chapter 19, the end of the chapter, he goes back to the temple, sort of gives the same message, and lo and behold, when he gives the message of warning to hard-hearted people, bad things happen, right? Chapter 20, verse 1. Now, Pashur, everybody say that. Pashur. He's not French. Pashur. Maybe that's Hebrew. Pashur is the Hebrew word for Pashur, the French. The son of Immer. The priest, who was also chief governor in the house of the Lord, heard that Jeremiah prophesied these things. He didn't like it because he was hard-hearted. Then Pashur he struck Jeremiah the prophet and put him in the stocks that were in the high gate of Benjamin, which was by the house of the Lord. Now, if you read through this real quick, you might think, yep, he kind of arrested him, put handcuffs on him, threw him out in the stocks. And you have these pictures, right, like of the county fair of the stupid thing you take a picture of where your hands are up here and you're head is sticking out, right? So you can take a stupid picture, right? That's, the, that's what it means, the stocks, right? Well, let's back up a minute. Where it says he struck uh, the prophet probably means that he scourged him, gave him the 39 stripes. Remember Jesus got 39 stripes? Uh, 39 stripes of scourging in the ancient world was really uh, kind of the ultimate punishment in a way, because the ultimate physical punishment short of death was because uh, it was it was commonly believed uh, that 40 would kill a person. So if you wanted to take a person as close to death without killing him, you give him 39 stripes. And so you'll see this reference from time to time uh, about the 39 stripes. And so probably that's what it means there, where he struck Jeremiah. So he gives him 39 stripes, and then he puts him in the stocks. Now the stocks are not what we picture from that cheesy little picture that I just described. It was kind of like that, but they did it almost like a vice where they would sort of contort your body and you'd be all twisted, right? The the Hebrew word really is also translated like twisted, right? So you'd be stuck there in this, you know, and your muscles would spasm after you've just been scorched, right? And you'd be stuck there and, and it would be public and it was by, uh, in the high gate of Benjamin, which was by the house of the Lord. So it's where everybody come by and watch and see uh, Jeremiah being humbled and ridiculed there. And so you get the idea of the laughing stock, right? The laughing stock was the guy that's being humbled and ridiculed by public opinion as they walk by and see yeah, that guy's stuck in the stocks, right? So it was a very painful, very demoralizing, very brutal kind of treatment that Jeremiah went through. And it happened on the next day that Pashur brought Jeremiah out of the stocks. Maybe he felt sorry for him or who knows what. Then Jeremiah said to him, The Lord has not called your name Pashur, but Magor Mizabib. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will make you a terror to yourself and to all your friends, and they shall fall by the sword of their enemies, and your eyes shall see it. I'll give all of Judah into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall carry them captive to Babylon, and slay them with the sword. Moreover, I will deliver all the wealth of the city, all its produce, all its precious things, all the treasuries, treasures of the kings of Judah I will give into the hand of their enemies who will plunder them, seize them, and carry them to Babylon. And you, Peshur, and all who dwell in your house shall go into captivity. You shall go to Babylon, and there you shall die and be buried there. You and all your friends to whom you have prophesied lies." So some commentators say that, you know, so Pashur puts him in this, he scourges him, puts him in these stocks, and then comes back on the next day. Maybe we've humbled uh, Jeremiah enough, maybe we've tortured him enough that he'll kind of cool down his message. Because clearly the intent of Pashur here is to cool down Jeremiah's message. Did that work? Let me tell you, just as powerful as a hard-hearted person to not soften up, if you will, equally powerful is the work of the Lord in the life of a faithful person, right? So Pashur, in fact, when he takes him out of the stocks, he didn't kind of cool down his message, but you got to love this. Jeremiah says, by the way, there, your name is Pashur. Pashur means freedom or ease. That's no longer your name. Your name is now Magor Mizabib, which means terror on every side. Hi, I'm Scott. What's your name? Oh, my name is terror on every side, right? You want to have that name? No. And then he goes on. Jeremiah's word is definitely not tamed down at all. Basically, he says, you know, this nation's going to go down. The Babylonians are going to carry it away. I'm going to deliver all the wealth, all the produce. I'm going to have the Babylonians basically annihilate this town. And oh, by the way, you, Peshur, and all who dwell in your house shall go to captivity. You're going to go to Babylon, and there you shall die and be buried there, you and all your friends to whom you have prophesied lies. That's a very strong, strong Uh, prophecy. And then Jeremiah kind of reflects now with the Lord, because you got to admit, these words would be hard to say, right? If you're Jeremiah, it's not just, sometimes we get the idea that these prophets, and and I want to highlight this for the rest of this chapter, sometimes we get these ideas. We see guys like Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel, Daniel. We think, I mean, are these guys resilient? These guys are resilient. Sometimes we, we forget the human side of them because we see, so, we see that they are such rock stars of the faith. And sometimes we say, I could never do that, right? And honestly, if I read the words of Jeremiah, I'd say, I could never do that, right? What would you do after a day in the stocks after Ben's scourging and Peshur lets you go? What would you say? I can tell you what I'd say. Uh, thanks, see ya. I'm out of here, right? I wouldn't say. Oh, by the way, and another thing, right? I wouldn't do that, right? But Jeremiah, now I think we see basically his 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 side, you know, when he goes to the Lord. Now, so now we see Jeremiah talking to the Lord. Oh Lord, you induced me, and I was persuaded. Basically, you call me to be a prophet. You put these words in my mouth. You told me what to do, and and I was persuaded. Why? Because you're stronger than I and have prevailed. So that makes sense. I'm in derision daily. Everyone mocks me. For when I spoke, I cried out. I shouted violence and plunder because the word of the Lord was made to me a reproach and a derision daily. It's almost like Jeremiah is kind of going to the Lord and, and maybe not whining, but maybe a little bit. You know, he says, hey, Lord, I know you called me to be a prophet, but I didn't sign up for all this. You ever feel like in life... God puts you in a situation or gives you certain responsibility or, uh, you know, just where you find yourself in life or relationships or whatever, and you feel like, Lord, I didn't sign up for this, right? Well, I think that should be encouraging to us because we're not alone in that. Then I said, tell you what, because I think we've probably all felt like this at some point or another too. Tell you what, I got a solution to this, Jeremiah says. I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name. But his word was in my heart like a burning fire, shut up in my bones. I was weary of holding it back, and I could not. So so often we have this challenge that we that we have to kind of work through, right? That maybe we're in a position that God has put us in, and we're supposed to be used by him, and we're supposed to, you know, be there for a reason for such a time as this, like Esther. And Maybe even we're tempted to like draw back or to quit. Lord, I just I'm done with this. This is more than I signed up for. I'm done. And you can't quite get away with it, right? It's like and he said, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna quit this. But his word was in my heart like a burning fire, shut up in my bones. I was weary of holding it back and I could not. I was talking to somebody this week. I had a time, uh, this has been several years ago, and I don't even remember what the setting was. But I remember feeling like, Lord, uh, you know, you ever have these dialogues with the Lord like Jeremiah's Heaven Now? Thank you. I can always count on at least one affirmative voice. Uh, so, anyway, I, di- I was having this dialogue with the Lord. Lord, This is a little more than I signed up for. I'd like to just retreat and take a chill, right? You ever feel like that? Lord, I'd like to take three steps back and just chill and let somebody else worry about the responsibilities. And, you know, I've never really heard the Lord speak to me audibly, but sometimes the Lord will speak to me in what I believe is a still small voice. It's like the thought in your head that you ever have a thought in your head that that is consistent with Scripture, right? Right? that's like, came out of nowhere, right? And so this thought, still small voice comes in my head. You know what, you can do that. You're free to do that. You got an awesome family, got a pretty cool job. You live in a great place. It was after we lived here. You live in an awesome place. You can pretty much do your thing, right? play a lot of golf, whatever it is you want to do. You can do that thing. And then this still small voice says, but you'll be miserable. You'll be miserable. And I remember thinking, all right, I think I'm done with that conversation. Thank you, Lord. And I don't want to be miserable, right? And I think there's so much in this little dialogue here between Jeremiah and the Lord that reveals to us so much what we go through oftentimes. And let me just bring it out because as I think as is a point of an encouragement. Number one, we're not alone if we've ever felt that way because Jeremiah felt that way. I know I have felt that way. And sometimes we just want to quit. Sometimes we just want to quit. Doesn't mean we want to go necessarily in a life of indulgent sin. We just want to quit pause, go neutral for a minute, right? But as we are as tempted to do that, if our hearts are soft, the Lord would be like, you know what, you're not doing it in your own strength anyway. And the cool thing about it is, as like in, at least in my life, what it reminded me was, I'm not doing what I do for any reason other than to try to be faithful to the Lord, right? takes all the showmanship out of it and so uh, you know we all have temptations and I'm certainly tempted with motives and all that other stuff anyway you know like everybody is I guess but you know the take-home message is that serving the Lord's not about glory it's not about recognition it's not about ease it's not about comfort right it's about faithfulness it's about dependence on him and so Jeremiah knew that personally he says, for I heard many mocking, fear on every side, report they say, that, and we will report it. All my acquaintances watched for my stumbling, saying, perhaps he can be induced. Then we will prevail against him and we will take our revenge on him. So notice this also, if you're ever in a position where the Lord has you in a certain place of responsibility or anything like that, your detractors are watching. They're watching for you to slip up and discredit yourself. And so that happened to Jeremiah. But he goes back, but the Lord is with me as a mighty, awesome one. Now we're talking. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble and will not prevail. Now we're talking. They'll be greatly ashamed, for they will not prosper. Their everlasting confusion will never be forgotten. But O Lord of hosts, you who test the righteous and see the mind and heart, let me see your vengeance on them. Now we're talking. For I have pleaded my cause before you. So it's like, again, like we talked a little bit about last week, right? You know, we don't necessarily wish doom for our enemies but a little godly vengeance might be okay right so he's kind of going there a little bit and then he kind of breaks into praise you got to like this now he's as he's praying sing to the lord praise the lord for he has delivered the life of the poor from the hand of the evildoers now his now his head's in the right spot right and he's going to stay there right and like we as christians once we get our head in the right spot we never struggle again Right? No. no. Thank you. Right? No. Curse. Then he goes on. Now the wheels fall off. You got to love this. By the way, I'm wrestling with this. Lord, I wanted to quit, but then you wouldn't let me quit. I'd like for vengeance on my enemies. But Lord, I realize that you're ultimately in control of the vengeance and the justice in the world. And I'm just going to sing praises to you. you. You've delivered my hand from the my life from the hand of evildoers. And then the more I think about it, cursed be the day in which I was born. Who's that sound like? George Bailey. (laughs) Job. The answer is Job. The right answer is Job. Cursed be the day in which I was born. Let the day not be blessed in which my mother bore me. Let the man be cursed who brought news to my father, saying a male child has been born to you, making him very glad. It's interesting, you know, in the Old Testament, in in the Jewish culture, the Jewish law, you couldn't curse your father or mother, right? That would be punishable by stoning, right? But you could curse the guy that brought news to your father, (laughs) right? It's kind of a roundabout way of saying curse my mother or father. Curse the guy that, you know, curse the, the day that my mother bore me, but not my mother, curse the guy that brought news to my dad but not my father and let that man be like the cities which the lord overthrew and did not relent let him hear the cry in the morning and the shouting at noon because he did not kill me from the womb that my mother might have been my grave and her womb always enlarged with me why did i come forth from the womb to see labor and sorrow that my days should be consumed with shame wow so again let me just say this as christians If we're honest, we may even have moments where we feel like this, right? Now, you know, you could make a case that Jeremiah is pretty suicidal at this point, right? I mean, suicide is not anything to be taken lightly, but he's very despondent. And let me just say this, at the end of the day, by the end of chapter uh, chapter 52 of Jeremiah, who wins in Jeremiah's life? He does. God does through him, right? So during those points when you're in those deep, deep valleys, I don't care how deep they are or why they're that deep, sometimes you just got to hang on. Sometimes you just got to hang on and let God carry you through it. And I believe if we're faithful, He will. I believe that with all my heart. God is faithful. God is faithful. So whatever that thing is, if, if you ever find yourself at that point, maybe you're at that point today, but if you ever find yourself at that point, just hang on. Because it's not about your strength, your ability, your charisma, your talent, your wealth, your wisdom. It's about God sometimes carrying us through those things. yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear what? No evil. Why? Because you are with me. Because you are with me. That's all we need. End of story. God is with us. That's all we need. So, but having said that, it's kind of cool that we have the example of Jeremiah that he's at least transparent enough that we know that he felt this way. Fair enough? Is that fair? So we take a little bit of a shift uh, away from Jeremiah the man and now we go to Jeremiah the ministry and we're going to move into the final kings of the nation of Judah. Now you may remember quiz. Are you okay with quizzes? Well then go to the back row. Are you, if, you're, if you're okay with quizzes, if you're not okay with quizzes, you can just stay where you want and just kind of go incognito and hope I don't call on you. Right? Who's the last awesome Godly king, the nation of Judah. Josiah. It sounded kind of like a chorus of Josiah. Yeah. Now, those of you who've been with us as we've taught through Kings and Chronicles, you know that there were a handful of them that came after Josiah, right? Can anybody give me the names in order and how they're related to one another? Me neither. I always get messed up on that. I always get messed up on that, and so I was thinking through this, and I thought we got to just overcome this. We got to lay this to rest once and for all, okay? So we're going to lay this to rest once and for all. And I like visual aids a little bit, right? And so this is going to lay it to rest once and for all. This going to, by the end of the, by by noon, this is going to be so clear in your head. You could take any test anywhere about the final kings of the nation of of Judah, right? If it comes on. Okay, so there you go, right? Piece of cake. Well, and the reason I'm kind of going through this a little bit because these names get thrown around a little bit towards the end. And in chapter 21 and chapter 22, we're going to address basically all of these guys, okay? So Josiah had, how many sons you want to guess Josiah had? Three. Three. One of them's name was Jehoahaz. The reason you get mixed up on these things is they all start with Jehoah, right? One of them's name was Jehoahaz. He's also called Shalem. Everybody go with that? He reigns for a while. Then he gets carried off to Egypt by Pharaoh Necho, same guy that killed his father, Josiah. Jehoahaz gets deposed, and then comes Jehoiakim, right? His brother. Jehoiakim winds up, he's there for a little while. He winds up getting carried off to, uh, well, he gets killed in battle by the Babylonians. Uh, it's a little confusing if he gets killed after he gets there or if it's like on the way there. But anyway, he gets killed by Babylonians, wiped out. He has a son named Jehoah Chin, right? Now, my son, my son, not my son Jehoiachin. Chin, I never named one that way. But my son, Nate, who likes to make sport of my memorizing techniques, right, pointed out that M comes before N. So Jehovah Kim came before Jehovah Chin, right? He usually likes to make sport of my memorization techniques, but you'll know that now. Anyway, so Jehovah Chin comes after Jehovah Kim. Jehovah Chin, interestingly and importantly for today, is also called Jeconiah or Coniah for short. Fair enough? Jehovah Chin or Jeconiah or Coniah gets carried off to Babylon, prisoner, okay? And then finally, ultimately, his uncle, Zedekiah, becomes the final king, and Zedekiah is the final king at the time of the destruction of Judah in 586 B.C., right? And again, in honor to Nate, uh, the last king of the nation of Judah appropriately starts with a letter Z, because he's the last king, right? Got that? Josiah had three sons. Who are they? Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah. Jehoiakim had a son named Jehoiachin. Jehoahaz's name is also called Shalom. Jehoiachin is also called Jeconiah or Coniah. Now, the reason we, that I want us to kind of do this, Jeremiah messes us up a little bit also in addition to all this because he doesn't go necessarily chronologically. Okay? So just to point this out, chapter 21, chapter 21 is about Zedekiah, and chapter 22 is about the other three guys. So can you hang with that? He doesn't always go. He doesn't always go chronological. Sometimes he goes. He, he goes thematic, if you will. And so, is it crystallizing your head, everybody? I'm going to turn it off because it's there. It's in the. It's in the tank, right? Okay, good. All right, chapter 21. The word of the Lord, which or the word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, when King Zedekiah sent to him Pashur the son of Melkiah, and Zephaniah the son of Messiah the priest. Now this is a different Pashur; it was a common name, so don't be messed up. It's a different Pashur we read about in chapter twenty. And also keep in mind now, now we've suddenly fast forwarded really to the to the end of the nation of Judah uh, because we're in the reign of Zedekiah. So this guy, Zedekiah, sends these guys to inquire, saying, please inquire of the Lord for us. For Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, makes war against us. Perhaps the Lord will deal with us according to all of his wonderful works that the king may go away from us. And so what Zedekiah is saying here now, now at this point in history, the Babylonians have surrounded the city of Jerusalem, right? And we've talked about this before. Basically, they did that for about a year and a half, starving them out, right? So you surround the city. You don't let anybody go in or come out. You deprive them of food and water, right? And basically, they starve, they starve themselves out. They get to such a desperate weakened state that after a year and a half of that, it's pretty easy to just bust down the walls and go in and take them, right? Because they're, they're that vulnerable. And so we're, in that sort of year and a half, we're within that year and a half time frame now when the Babylonians are around us. And Zedekiah says, hey, this would be a good time to ask Jeremiah um, for a word from the Lord, right? when would be a good time to ask Jeremiah for a word from the Lord? Before this moment, right? Before this moment. Maybe for the previous 40 years, while Jeremiah was saying, repent, maybe that would have been a good time to listen to Jeremiah. But he didn't, and so here he is. And probably, most commentators say, he's probably reflecting back to uh, a few generations prior, you recall when Hezekiah was wrapped up in the, nation, or in the city of Jerusalem and the Assyrians were surrounding him. Remember that? And Hezekiah prays and somebody wakes up the next day and goes outside. Oh, there's 185,000 dead Assyrian soldiers surrounding us, right? So Zedekiah thinks that'd be cool trick to pull off right now, but it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. And even now, I want you to notice this. If you're Jeremiah, you've been preaching to these kings for, for a few decades now. You've been preaching a message of repentance. They've, the way they thank you is they put you in stocks, they scourge you, they torture you, they, they mock you, they do all this for decades. And now all of a sudden trouble comes and they say, hey, give us a word from the Lord. Maybe he, he'll be good to us. What would be your temptation Soft-hearted people, right? I set you up. Your temptation, because you're soft-hearted, you're going to say, oh, bless your heart, it just doesn't work that way, right? But your temptation is going to be, hello? I've been talking to you for, for 40 years now, right? You got what's coming to you. But Jeremiah doesn't do that, and I appreciate that about him. Jeremiah said to them, thus you shall say, he's just saying it matter of fact, thus says the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I'll turn back the weapons of war that are in your hands, with which you fight against the king of Babylon and the Chaldeans who besiege you outside the walls, and I will assemble them in the midst of this city. I myself will fight against you with an outstretched outstretched hand and with a strong arm, even in anger and fury and great wrath. I will strike the inhabitants of this city, both man and beast. They shall die of a great pestilence." And so I want you to notice here, Jeremiah says, yep, God is in fact going to work supernaturally. God, yes, Zedekiah, thanks for asking, God is going to work a miracle. As a matter of fact, He's going to work supernaturally on behalf of the Babylonians against you and against your army, and your destruction will be great. And notice also, I just have to point out, part of that destruction is going to be famine and pestilence. So God doesn't always work just by swords and spears, right? Part of the destruction God is going to deliver to the nation of Judah here is famine and pestilence. And then he says afterward that says the Lord, I will deliver Zedekiah, king of Judah, his servants and the people, and such as are left in this city from the pestilence and the sword and the famine into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their life. And he shall strike them with the edge of the sword. He shall not spare them or have pity or mercy. And so God is going to ultimately punish Zedekiah and all of his followers and uh, everybody who has rejected the word of the Lord. Verse eight, now you shall say to this people. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. Ding, 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 ding. This is critical. Please catch this. In the midst of all this, Jeremiah's message has been rejected for 40 years now. The Babylonians are surrounding, uh, surrounding the city. Zedekiah is kind of freaking out a little bit. He's panicked. Jeremiah says, Yeah, as a matter of fact, it's worse than you think it is. I'm going to fight. God's going to fight on behalf of the Babylonians. And they're going to come in and they're going to destroy you. And not only with the sword, but also with famine and pestilence. And there's going to be great destruction here. And in the midst of that, Jeremiah says these words. Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. Get this. It is never, ever... Ever on this side of heaven. Too late to repent. Amen. It is never too late to repent. If there were ever a point where you'd look historically and say, "Too bad, so sad for you," it's too late. Well, guess what? In the eyes of God, it's not too late. And then He even tells him how. Here's how you do it. I've set before you today life. The way of life and the way of death. Here's how it works. He who remains in the city shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. You want to fight him? You're going to fight him to the end. But he who goes out and defects to the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans is another word for the Babylonians. But he who goes out and defects to the Chaldeans who besiege you, he shall live. And his life shall be as a prize to him. For I have set my face against this city for adversity and not for good, says the Lord. It shall be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall burn it with fire. So this city's going down, the Lord says. The Lord says, I have, I have pronounced judgment on this city and all who choose to remain in it. Things look bad right now. Things look very bad. I'm going to fight supernaturally on behalf of the Babylonians. And things look bad. And if you want, I'm telling you, even in the midst of that, there's a way of life and a way of death. The way of death is keep trying to do what you're doing. The way of life is... Trust me, defect to the Babylonians. Defect to the Babylonians. And so the opportunity for, quote, life is to defect to the Babylonians. Now that would have been, seemed very counterintuitive to the Jewish mind. That would have been very counterintuitive to the Jewish mind. You've got to remember, the Jews, even as they're rejecting the Lord for all these centuries, they're God's chosen people. God brought us up out of the land of Egypt. We're the son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We deserve better than this. The Babylonians are the ultimate scumbag Gentiles that are worse than dogs. And you want us to defect to them? That's counterintuitive. Let me just suggest following God is often counterintuitive. But at this point in time, if I heard Jeremiah preaching warning and repent for 40 years and now everything that he has said is going to happen is in the process of happening, at this point, I'd like to think I would repent. But the hard heart is very hard, right? And notice there's always there, there's a fa- fascinating pattern. I just have to point this out in the midst of... Um, this context, this paragraph. God often does this. You ever notice this, right? God's going to bring destruction on Sodom and Gomorrah, right? What does he tell lot in his family? Hey, by the way, now's the time to get out, right? God always, God always does this. God always gives an opportunity before, I mean, God delivers punishment. There's no doubt about it. He's got a strong track record of delivering punishment at various times in history to various places and people. That's a reality. God is God. He's allowed to do that. Right? But God always, as an act of mercy, offers that opportunity for escape prior to that. Right? What did he tell Noah and his family? By the way, there's going to be destruction. Right? You get out. In a sense, get in the boat. Right? Get out. God always has these ways. I think in the future, uh, in the times yet to come, there's going to be a great tribulation come upon planet earth. And I believe prior to the great tribulation, we see, uh, I believe just another of these pictures, prior to the great tribulation, there's going to be an opportunity for all who would believe in Jesus Christ to get out. It's called the rapture of the church. After we're done with Jeremiah, we go to Thessalonians. We'll talk about the rapture of the church. But I believe it's a biblical truth. There's always a way out prior to the punishment. And concerning the house of the king of Judah, say, verse 11, hear the word of the Lord, O house of David. Thus says the Lord, execute judgment in the morning and deliver him who is plundered out of the hand of the oppressor, lest my fury go forth like fire and burn so that no one can quench it because of the evil of your doings. So we're talking about the house of David. We're talking about the kingly line, right? So we're back to talking about Zedekiah specifically. Hey, Zed, tell you what. Yes, I recognize the Babylonians have surrounded you. I recognize that things look bad. Now would be a good time to start dealing fair with people. Now would be a time to execute uh, fair judgment. Deliver him who is plundered out of the hand of the oppressor. Right? Because Zedekiah was in a position of authority. All these kings are in a position of authority. That's a position of responsibility. You cannot escape the responsibility we've been given even as us today, right? Sometimes, again, like we said in the last chapter, sometimes we're tempted to quit. But the reality is, if God has placed us in a place of certain responsibility, we're, we're called to be faithful to do that. And Zedekiah here, he was an evil king. And so Jeremiah knows that God knows uh, that Zedekiah is not going to repent. And so he proceeds then to say, behold, I am against you, O inhabitant of the valley and rock of the plain, says the Lord, who say, who shall come down against us? Or who shall enter our dwellings? But I will punish you according to the fruit of your doings, says the Lord. I'll kindle a fire in its forest, and it shall devour all things around it. So that takes care of Zedekiah, and uh, God knows that he won't repent, and so um, that's, his, that's his destruction. So we back up now again not from Zedekiah, we're going to talk about Jehoahaz and Jehoiakim and Jehoachin, right? Right. The guys up on the screen, right? Jehoahaz, the first one, Jehoiakim, his brother, and Jehoiakim's son, Jehoiachin. So we go through that. Now, these first ch- uh, verses in chapter 22 are about Jehoahaz, and we see that because his name, Shalem, is referenced in verse 11. So thus says the Lord, go down to the house of the king of Judah, And there speak this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah, you who sit on the throne of David, you and your servants and your people who enter these gates. Thus says the Lord, Execute judgment and righteousness and deliver the plundered out of the hand of the oppressor do no wrong and do no violence to the stranger the fatherless or the widow nor shed innocent blood in this place for if you indeed do this thing then shall enter the gates of this house riding on horses and in chariots accompanied by servants and people kings who sit on the throne of David but if you will not hear these words i swear by myself says the lord that this house shall become a desolation so you see kind of like you know kind of like in a movie sometimes we'll see like a scene and then you know then that, that fades out, you know, the scene at the beginning, we'll say, and then that scene fades out, and then we'll see, you know, a thing that says, you know, 30 years earlier, right? So a little more of a backstory. So here's what we're seeing here. There's the time of Zedekiah is, wow, the Babylonians are here, this is ugly, and at that time, Jeremiah says, well, you could repent, right? And defect to the Babylonians. And so that's kind of that. Now we say, you know, a few decades before we got this guy Jehoahaz, the, the son of Josiah, and um, the prophecy to him, the warning, when we, when we say to Zedekiah, God's been warning your people for decades, we're going back to that explanation of that. And interestingly, it's basically the same message, right? God is telling Jehoahaz, you know what? If you would execute judge, judgment and righteousness, If you would deliver the plundered out of the hand of the oppressor, the exact same words he told Zedekiah, then God will deliver you. But otherwise, God will bring destruction. The same message he gave to Zedekiah. For thus says the Lord to the house of the king of Judah, you are Gilead to me, the head of Lebanon. I will surely make, your, make you a wilderness, cities which are not inhabited. I will prepare destroyers against you, everyone with his weapons. They shall cut down your choice cedars and cast them into the fire. So Gilead and Lebanon were areas that were, that were known as places of, strength, places of strength. So the kings of David's line were representations of strength. However, because of their sin, God's going to bring punishment. And so what he's saying is, you might think you're Gilead or you're Lebanon to me because you're the son of David or you're a descendant of David, but because of your sin, I'm going to bring destruction. And many nations will pass by this city, and everyone will say to his neighbor, why has the Lord done so to this great city? That's what's going to be said as they pass by Jerusalem after this is all done. They'll pass by, and they'll say, why has the Lord done done so to this great city? And then they will answer, because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord their God and worshiped other gods and served them. Can I say this? One of the reasons we serve the Lord is because it's the right thing to do in light of all that God has done for us, right? Ephesians chapter 1, 2, and 3, God has blessed us so much. Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, therefore we walk accordingly, right? We've been through that. But there's another thing that we do when our lives are consistent, when we're I'm not talking about perfection, but when we faithfully walk with the Lord, it demonstrates to the world, it demonstrates to outsiders that, you know what, walking with the Lord seems like it works for that guy. It seems like God's blessing is on that guy. Seems like following the Lord might be a good idea because it's not that that guy's, you know, without problems or challenges or that he's, you know, healthy, wealthy, and wise or anything like that. But it just seems like there's something about following the God of the Bible that works. And that's true. That's totally true. God told uh, Asa, 2 Chronicles chapter 16, through the prophet, that God, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. God wants to be glorified in our lives. That's the bottom line. God wants to be glorified in our lives. I mean, he wants best for us, but he also, on, from his side, he'd like to be glorified in our, in, in our lives. You know, God doesn't want to say, well, yeah, that's my child, but... You know, I didn't tell him to do that, right? It's sort of inconsistent, right? And so what he's saying here is, you know what, when these people walk by and they see Jerusalem all destroyed, they're going to say, why? And the answer is, because they didn't follow the Lord. Even though they were the nation of Israel, they didn't follow the Lord. And then he tells Shalom, Jehoahaz, weep not for the dead, nor bemoan him. That's a reference to Josiah, his father. Weep not for the dead, nor bemoan him, but weep bitterly for him who goes away. That's you. For he shall return no more, nor see his native country. And so don't weep for Josiah, because he's dead. He's in heaven. But weep for the sinful king who's going to be carried off. Jehoahaz was carried off to Egypt, and he died there. He never returned. For thus says the Lord concerning Shalom, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, who reigned instead of Josiah his father, who went from this place, He shall not return here anymore, but he shall die in the place where they have led him captive, and he shall see his land no more. And so that's uh, Jehoahaz or uh, Shalom carried off to Egypt by Pharaoh Necho. Now we go to the next king. This one's Jehoakim, okay? Jehoakim we talk about uh, from verse 13 to verse 23. Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his chambers by injustice, who uses his neighbor's service without wages and gives him nothing for his work, who says, I'll build build myself a wide house with spacious chambers and cut out windows for it, paneling it with cedar and painting it with vermilion. And so, um, you know, Jehoiakim was famous in his day. You know, his reign, the the reign of Jehoiakim, you got to keep this in mind, Jehoahaz just got carried off to Egypt, the dominant world force now is, is slowly migrating. It's going, to happen, it's going to change during the reign of Jehoiakim from the rule of the Egyptians to the rule of the Babylonians, right? Babylonians will become the, the, the dominating empire. Egypt is at this point, Egypt is the one that killed Josiah. Egypt is the one that took Jehoahaz and removed him, took him back to Egypt. And then Egypt, uh, the king of Egypt, placed Jehoiakim in Jehoahaz's place. And he put him there, and he charged, him, charged the nation great tribute. They had to pay great taxation to uh, Egypt. And so you got these impoverished people. The whole nation is impoverished because they've got to pay heavy taxes to Egypt, right? And in the midst of that, Jehoiakim's king, right? Making himself a pretty cool house, right? You see the idea? A leader, a person in a position of authority, has to be very careful how he administers that authority if you're in a position of authority, you understand this. It's not just you get to be the boss. (laughs) It's you got responsibility Mm -hmm. and you got to carry it out and you got to carry it out faithfully. And so uh, Jehoiakim, he's just taken the opportunity to live the high life. And God doesn't really like that. Shall you reign because you enclose yourself in cedar? Verse 15. Did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? Then it was well with him. By the way, When Josiah was king, he reigned righteously, and it was, what, well with him. It's not going to be well with any of these evil kings. He judged the cause of the poor and the needy. Then it was well. Was not this knowing me, says the Lord? Yet your eyes and your heart are for nothing but your covetousness, for shedding innocent blood and practicing oppression and violence. Therefore, Thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. They shall not lament for him, saying, Alas, my brother, or alas, my sister. They shall not lament for him, saying, Alas, master, or alas, his glory. He shall be buried with the burial of a donkey, dragged and cast out beyond the gates of Jerusalem. So we said, you know, during his reign, the the big player moved from being Egypt to being Babylon, and finally uh, he is carried off uh, by the Babylonians. Uh, he's going to die a horrible death, and he's not even going to be given a proper burial. And notice as he's carried off to Babylon, right, to meet his demise, nobody's saying, "Oh, my brother," "Oh, my master," right? They're saying, "See ya," right? If you're in a position of authority, you got people that are supposed to follow your leadership, right? And you've been treating them fairly uh, for however many, you know, whatever long your reign is, we'll say, right? And you've been, you know, you may not have done everything exactly right, you know. They, they'll cut you a little slack, and they and and you know that you know you've been fair, you've been just, you've you've been self-serving as best you can, and then they carry you off to Babylon. <laughs> Hopefully they won't say, see ya. Hope you get a burial as good as a donkeys. Right? Well, that's what they said to him. See ya. You get the burial of a donkey. It's what you deserve. So it's a really sad picture. Go up to Lebanon and cry out. Lift your voice in Bashan. Cry from for I spoke For all your lovers that are destroyed, I spoke to you in your prosperity. But you said, I will not hear. This has been your manner from your youth. Can I tell you something? We live in relative prosperity in history and in the world. All of us. Right? So when God speaks to us in our prosperity, I'm a little, I'm always a little paranoid, right? Because I live a pretty comfortable life, right? We all live a pretty comfortable life. I live a pretty comfortable life, and I feel, and sometimes I ask myself, would I be willing to do what Jeremiah did, right? I mean, honestly last couple weeks, heat goes out, right? I'm kind of like, really? We got to leave those doors open so the hot air blows from out there to in here, right? Really? Right? God spoke to Jehoiakim in his prosperity. Let's be careful that prosperity is not what defines us, whether consciously or even subconsciously. So God says, I spoke to you in your prosperity, but you didn't obey my voice. The wind shall eat up all your rulers, and your lovers shall go into captivity. Surely then you will be ashamed and humiliated for all your wickedness, O inhabitant of Lebanon, making your nest in your cedars. How gracious will you be when pangs come upon you like the pain of a woman in labor? It'll be an ugly uh, state for Jehoiakim. And so... um, verse 24. I want to read through these last verses. A really cool uh, little thing about, if you hang on for just a few minutes, really cool uh, thing I think we see from Scripture regarding uh, the, th- the third of these three kings. Coniah, which is short for what? Jeconiah, which is another name for Jehoiachin. Because you know that Jehoiachin ends in an N, which comes after Jehoiachin. Which ends in a M, right? But you know, as before, is Zedekiah, which ends in a. See, I don't even need to put that thing back up. I can throw that thing away. That visual aid, I can throw it away because it's locked in the trap. Good job. So, we're talking to Coniah now. Jeconiah, Jehoiachin. As I live, says the Lord, though Coniah the son of Jehoiakim, see, he says it, he agrees with me, though Coniah though the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet on my right hand, yet I would pluck you off. And I'll give you into the hand of those who seek your life and into the hand of those whose face you fear the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and the hand of the Chaldeans. So I will cast you out and your mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. But to the land to which they desire to return, there they shall not return. This is a great paragraph. It's easy to miss a, because we don't understand the cultural context. Um, so it's important to break this down a little bit. The signet ring of a king was like his signature. The king would have um, uh, a ring, right? And it would be like, you know, it would have whatever his design is, whatever his logo is, right? And when he stamped on a, you know, a wax or on a document to seal a document, it was, this, it was the signet ring of the king. It was like his mark, right? How many, how many of those were there in the world? One. It's on the finger of the king, right? So if you see a document that's got that stamp on it, you're like, whoa, the king did that, yeah. right? And so we've got this guy, Coniah. He's like, I'm cool. I got the ring, right? <laughs> <laughs> Ain't nobody messing with my ring. I got the ring, right? I can sign whatever I want. I'm walking in authority. I'm the king. I'm the king. I can do whatever I want. I'm in control, right? Look what God says. Hey, dude, if you were the signet on my right hand, I'll pluck it off and give it to Nebuchadnezzar. Right? See the word picture there? It's powerful. It's very powerful. God is reminding this guy, you know what? You're not... You're not quite all that, even though you think you are because you're, you know, you're in that royal line, the seed of David, king of the Judah, all that, you know, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if you don't follow me. And he says, is this man, Coniah, a despised, broken idol, a vessel in which is no pleasure? Why are they cast out? He and his descendants and cast into a land which they do not know. So he, uh, Coniah, Jehoiachin, he winds up, he goes out to um, to Babylon. O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not prosper in his days, for none of his descendants shall prosper, sitting on the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. Now, this is referred to as the curse of Coniah, okay. It might be more than a Bible trivia question. I think it's relevant, but it's called the curse of Doniah, of Coniah. Now, Coniah, Jehoiachin is gonna have descendants, okay. But it says, it's almost like, it's almost like he won't. It says write this man down as childless, like as if he were childless. That's a curse. To the Jewish mindset, that is a curse, especially for a guy in the line of David, right? Write this guy down as childless. None of his descendants will prosper. And it would have been a particular statement against this guy's entitlement attitude. Why do I say that? Because we are Americans, right? There might be a little bit of entitlement in us right? Now you say, and let me just back up, right? Many of you know, David was promised by God, your descendant is going to be the Messiah, right? When Jesus came on the scene, the, the people, the common people, says the common people heard him gladly, they referred to him as, if someone wanted to say, I know you're the Messiah, they didn't say, I know you're the Messiah, they would say, Jesus, son of David, That's how they identified him. That means I'm calling you the Messiah, Jesus, son of David, because Jesus was a descendant of David, right? So, wait a minute. Turn over to Matthew chapter 1. Bear with me here. This is kind of cool. Matthew chapter 1, starting verse 1. It says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So Matthew, Matthew's job from the get-go is to prove to the Jewish audience that Jesus is the Messiah. Well, we know that the Messiah is going to be Jewish, right? He's going to be a son of Abraham. And we know that the Messiah is going to be through the line of David, right? Because that was promised to David. And so he goes through this, Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. It goes all down the line. And then if you go down to the end, verse uh, 15, Elia begot Eleazar, Eleazar begot Mathan, and Mathan begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is also called Christ. Yeah, so there's the line from Abraham to Jesus, right? Through Joseph. This would have been the royal line or the political line. Notice specifically, verse 11. Josiah begot Jeconiah, that's Jehoiachin, and his brothers about the time they were carried off to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Sheltiel, and Sheltiel begot Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel begot Abied, And it goes on down all the way to Jesus. So you say, wait a minute, there's a contradiction, because Jeremiah says in the curse of of Coniah that, you know, his descendants are going to not prosper. Write this man down as childless, a man who shall not prosper in his days. None of his descendants shall prosper. How does his son Sheltiel make it into the genealogy of Jesus Christ? Well, his son Sheltiel is in sort of the the political line of Jesus Christ. He's not in the biological line of Jesus Christ because where does this go? This goes to Jacob, verse 16, Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary of whom was born Jesus who is also called Christ. Was Jesus a physical descendant of Joseph? No. No. Jesus was not a physical descendant of Joseph. So this doesn't uh, contradict the curse of Coniah, if you will. If you go to Luke chapter 3, and we don't need to in the interest of time, but well, okay, let's go to Luke chapter 3 just for a second. Luke chapter 3, verse 23. When you're there, say there. Now, Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph. So Luke is pointing out that we all know that it was only supposedly from Joseph, because we know that he was, that, jo- that Mary was impregnated by the Holy Spirit. Okay. As was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Helah, Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, goes all the way down. It winds up coming to, uh, if you look at verse 31, the son of Nathan, the son of David. So you see this? The The genealogy breaks after David. The political line goes through Solomon, the physical line goes through Nathan. If you look back to verse 23, Jesus himself began his ministry about 30 years of age, as was supposed son of Joseph, the son of Heli. Probably a more uh, accurate translation for our language would be the son-in-law of Heli. So the Luke genealogy goes through the physical line through Mary. And the Matthew genealogy goes through the political line through the line of the king. So what do we have? we got the curse of Coniah in Jeremiah chapter 22. If we look at it at face value from the genealogy in Matthew, we say, wait a minute, there's a contradiction of Scripture. But I just want to point out, I, I, use, I use this as a, to point out, God is very specific when He fulfills prophecy. Exquisitely specific. God always fulfills His Word. God always does it very precisely. So, that's Koniah. So, Jehoahaz never follows the Lord. He's got a hard heart. Jehoiakim never follows the Lord. He has a hard heart. Jehoachin, never follows the Lord. He has a hard heart. And Zedekiah, after listening to this stuff for decades, never repents. Though he's given opportunity, everybody's given opportunity to repent until the very last moment. That's how God always works. And then Jeremiah along the way, His life was difficult but eternally blessed because he remained faithful. The last four kings of Judah relied on everything but simple faith in God and repentance of sin. And so the problem for us is simple faith in God and repentance of sin is the only solution to our sin problem. It's the only solution. And so we just need to humbly seek him and faithfully follow him and He'll encourage us and carry us all along the way. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You. We thank You that You're so good to us, that You're so attentive to detail, that You give us those two genealogies, and You're so attentive to know the concerns in our hearts that You reveal to us that even Jeremiah was so despondent that he cursed the day of his birth. And Lord, on any given day, we, we live in a range of circumstances and a range of emotions and a range of relationships and, and all of that, but you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so, Lord, we thank you that you're so good to us. We thank you that you know the number of hairs on our head and you know what concerns us today. And so, Lord, give us the strength to carry on in whatever capacity you have for us. Give us the determination to be faithful to you and to the life that you've called us to. Help us not to quit, but help us to continue with you knowing that, uh, that you do a good work in our lives that you who began a good work will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. We'll thank you for it, in Jesus' name. Amen.